Welcome, I'm Melissa Durda, and this is Synergo's Cultivate the Soul podcast. Stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practices, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view the full episode list, please visit synergos.org slash podcast. Hello, my name is Fahnaz Karim. I'm the founder and CEO of Insan Group, and I cultivate my soul by going to the field. Today we are joined by Farnaz Karim, founder and CEO of the Insan Group. Farnaz is a social entrepreneur, political scientist, and humanist. She founded Insan, which is a nonprofit that invests in solutions to poverty. They focus on Sub-Saharan Africa and India. Farnaz's full bio is available on our podcast website. Farnaz, first I want to thank you for coming onto the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Me too. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd love to get us started by asking you to tell us a memory or story from your life that's been instrumental in shaping your views on what matters. Thank you so much, Melissa. Perhaps before I dive into the story that was the most catalytic, I think for me, I can very briefly give you a sense of where the global ethos that I carry within me comes from. Um, you may have heard a question that has been used uh, for Rishi Sunak, the story of people of Indian origin that went to Africa and then migrated again and they call them the twice migrants. So we are not just twice migrants, but we are thrice migrants. So the story intergenerationally started from Gujarat in India, but I was actually born in Madagascar, moved to France when I was younger and ended up in Canada. And I think that's really important to point out because I think much of my work after this will be more clear with the understanding of this journey and seeing my parents as well, you know, go through a number of economic episodes and seeing them actually demonstrate the values of hard work and honesty and an entrepreneurial spirit and generosity. So I'm very much the product of this background. And as part of that sort of global story, when I was 11 years old or so, our parents took us to India, my brother and I, and that trip to Calcutta was a really formative sort of part of my existence because I had a, as a very young student in Canada, I was in the French Lycée, to arrive in India and seeing Calcutta, children sleeping in the streets and wondering, how is this possible, this level of destitution and this kind of feeling that there's a whole segment of global society that's completely marginalized and I didn't even know about it. And so that was kind of the moment of awakening. I remember going back to school after this trip and heading straight to the library to start researching why are people poor? And that's how I started learning about in terms of trade and governance and big institutions and aid and all of this kind of stuff. So this was really the formative moment. 
Thank you for sharing that story. I can imagine through your eyes as a younger person coming from Canada to experience that in India and the impact that it had on you. Would you say this helped define for you this purpose that you have in life and how that may connect to this work you're doing through philanthropy and investing? And if so, how? Absolutely. I think from that point on, I was very directed, directed from the inside. I mean, I don't think that I had a normal process of exploring various careers and and I didn't even think in those terms. I went straight with this idea that I should just use this passion and this awakening to gain the knowledge that I want to gain, that I have to gain in order to make a difference in the world. And so very, very early on, I was kind of propelled by a realist idealism. I would call it like this. So and I think I still am idealistic. You know, of course, it's tempered by the reality of <laughs> human existence. But I still am very much in the space of the normative, in the space of how the world should be, how the world could be, perpetually dissatisfied with how the world is. So very much so, I think that that experience has animated my desire. Essentially, if I had to summarize it, it's on the one hand, a desire to contribute to building a more equitable world. On the one hand, this is what I've tried to pursue with nonprofit work. And on the other hand, this kind of passion as well for a more peaceful world as well. And that I pursued through academia. In essence, a more equitable world, a more peaceful world, and this notion of Realist idealism is very much at the core of everything that I am and everything that I do. So how would you say along this journey of learning and through experience, have you found sources of inspiration along the way that's led you to this place where you are and the work that you're doing? Definitely. And I think that the place of inspiration for me is really encapsulated in the name of the institution that was founded as a result of what I saw when I was younger and, and what I did after. And the institution I created is called Insan. And Insan essentially means human in a number of languages, in Arabic, in Persian. It's widely understood in South Asia, Central Asia, and even in East Africa. And really, I think the ultimate source of inspiration for me that I saw everywhere I went is really the human spirit of resilience and creativity. And this is Insan. Insan is really this, this, this idea that we're all the same in this journey, right? This finite journey that we're all on. And so that there's that commonality of the reality of the human condition. But then there is that incredible energy that comes from sort of the spirit that we all have of resilience and creativity. That's my inspiration. That's what I see in everyone. And that's what makes my life beautiful every day. That's beautiful. I love that. I love the meaning of the name of your company and how you have so eloquently described human spirit and how it connects to you. And I'm imagining to your own spirit. So let's get a little bit into the work of Insan. Tell me about what you do, how you do it, and anything more that you'd want to share in terms of this model that you've created to make change. That's great. So essentially, Insan is very much the result of what I learned by going to the field. So I was animated by this desire to 
build a more equitable world or contribute to building one and getting close to the issues that would create also a more peaceful world. So, you know, in my mid-20s, I supervised elections in Bosnia after the war. So I saw firsthand what conflict does. I saw what discrimination does. You know, the stories of genocide and, and the rebuilding of these countries, right, after conflict. And then I pursued studies in international relations and then went to serve as a United Nations volunteer for a couple of years between Pakistan and Afghanistan. This was under the Taliban. So it was quite challenging intellectually and morally as well. And what I learned in these experiences, and there were many more in Central Asia and doing you know, humanitarian work, et cetera. But what I learned through these experiences, which essentially led me to Insan, were two things. The first is that I felt that the aid system in general was very short-term oriented. So there's a lot of money for short-term projects. You know, build a well, build a school, give some pens, give some books, give some clothes, donate this, donate that, but not necessarily open to supporting local entrepreneurial solutions. And there was not that much need to supply money in this top-down manner, but there was more of a need to listen to those who were on the ground, listen to their innovations and solutions, and then to help them with capital or with mentoring or whatever else they need in order to make those solutions successful. So that was one of the first learnings. And this is, of course, pre-impact days, right? The term impact hadn't really entered global consciousness back then. And then the second sort of takeaway from that time in the field was, you know, the question of measurement. Because we as managers and leaders or some of these institutions on the ground, we ourselves had to report to our donors and our funders. And we just kept on reporting on all the wrong metrics, basically, <laughs> you know, over and over again. How much money did you spend? Is there any left? I hope there's none left. That was a good thing. And did you build what you said you're going to build? But actually, no one really cared about whether, let's say, a well was actually giving clean water. And how do you measure that it's clean water? And no one really cared that, that clean water was actually going to reduce the impact of a disease in the village. And so we were very much at the input and at the output level, but not at all thinking about outcomes or impact. And I felt that was problematic. And I was lucky enough to meet people along this journey, and many of which are on my board today and are on my team. And all these values and all these learnings resonate with all of us. And so this is how Insan came about from these learnings. And essentially with these very two simple learnings, number one, philanthropic capital that should be flexible to fund innovative solutions to poverty, number one, and number two, Let's try to measure things a little bit better. Two very simple propositions. And with this, we got lucky and got our funding from, in part, from the Umidjar family, founder of eBay. This is how we got going. And then the story went on from there. But this is essentially the genesis of, of Insan. Thank you for sharing that. We at Synergos also believe in the importance of listening, listening to communities, that communities have solutions to their own problems, but oftentimes don't have 
the connections or the resources that those of us working in the international sphere can bring to them. Yes, the measurement of impact is so important, measuring the right things in terms of how it is actually impacting the communities in which you're serving. So can you perhaps ground this a bit more in an example of an enterprise or a project that will help us understand an example of how Insan works? I guess the most simple way to explain it is to think about Insan as a very unusual type of philanthropic entity. So we don't just give money, but we take philanthropic capital. And we bring along impact investors if they want to come along with us in this journey. And we essentially invest in these early stage ventures that are coming up with great innovative ideas to solve their own problems. So in a way, for those who are business-minded, it's a little bit like venture capital. (laughs) But it's venture capital for the underserved or those who have been marginalized by the economic system. Yeah, this is a fun way to think about it. And so we're bringing the tools of capitalism, but hijacking them for the greater good. So that's conceptually what what we're doing. And that makes Insan innovative as well, because not many other entities do that. And so just before I give you examples, why do we do this? And I think that's really critical to highlight, because I think in the past, in some conversations, I was not really clear why. So the first why is exactly what you said, Melissa, and very much in alignment with the Synergos philosophy, is really to support local entrepreneurial solutions and innovations. We don't come with a ready-made template and say, this is it. And so this is the first why. The second why is because we really want to make sure that whatever we're doing is impactful, that we're having a good impact. Maybe that impact is around the creation of employment. Because if we create jobs, then of course we raise incomes and then we reduce the number of poor people, essentially are those that are not earning enough to sustain themselves, their families, their communities. Uh, so that that's one kind of metric, employment. And then the other metric is also sort of a relevant product or service that can be brought to a particular geography or a particular community. And I'll give examples in a minute. And of course, the third why is because this kind of catalytic capital approach, because it really is catalytic capital. It's kind of early stage risk-taking, long-term oriented capital that we want to invest. That kind of catalytic capital approach also assumes that there could be a financial return. And hopefully there will be a financial return. And that financial return should go back to Insan. It should go back to the nonprofit so we make our own model sustainable. Because how else do you make a nonprofit sustainable? Either you've inherited a lot of money, you've created a religion that helps you raise a lot of money, not that many options to make a a nonprofit sort of sustainable. So those were the three reasons why it's modeled in this way. And the cool thing about it, the very cool thing about it, is that yes, you can support a project that is health-oriented and make a donation, for sure. Yes, you can support a cancer charity somewhere or some other disease that resonates with your value system or your life experience. 
But we found that instead of doing this, if you took $50,000 or $100,000 and said, you know what, I'm going to actually give through, let's say, Insan or any other venture like this and support a health venture that is not only working on a project basis, but is actually creating a, a social enterprise, an impact enterprise that are going to create clinics in the slums. And through these clinics, they will actually not only build one or two clinics, but if we fund them enough and we support them with more blended capital and maybe advisory, maybe photography, maybe with fellows that will help them on social media marketing and all sorts of other ways that we can help them, then that model can scale. And we supported Aksasafia, for instance, in the slums of Kenya. When we invested, there were two clinics, and now there are 15. And they've just raised more money to get to 24 in the next year. And that means that half a million patients served. That's what I call impact. And I don't mean impact just in a quantitative way, because we know better than this in Insan, right? But it's really an entity that is data-driven and that looks also at the health outcomes and the patient satisfaction and the fact that they've been treated. And this kind of stuff is amazing. This is what we mean by catalytic capital. Thank you. That helps ground it in specific examples. So what I've heard you speak about that really resonates is around supporting the local solutions. So these are projects or enterprises that are created locally and through this catalytic capital, you're also able to offer support that's needed to these enterprises to help them be successful and to also generate these financial returns that makes the model sustainable. I read in your bio that you're an observer or an advisor to all the social enterprisers backed by Insan. So that sounds like a very exciting piece of the work for you to be highly engaged in these enterprises. but. Is there another example, maybe one that's close to your heart, or to also allow us to understand more about what kind of support is useful for local enterprises when you approach them with capital in this way? Thank you, Melissa. That's great. So the short answer is they're all close to, <laughs> to my heart and to the hearts of all those that are involved in building the portfolio over time. I just want to say a couple of things on the local part and on the close to heart part before I give you a few more examples that will add color to the portfolio. The first is a quick word on local. Some foundations operating in the space have taken the term local to an extreme and they will refuse to fund particular innovations if, for instance, in the team, there is not a woman or there is not a person of a certain skin color or a certain nationality or a certain ethnic background. And they will say, no, they're not really, really local. They're pseudo-local, <laughs> not completely local, etc." I think this is really doing a disservice to the idea of innovation and the idea of inclusion generally. And so what we mean by local is not necessarily a checklist where we say, oh, we exclude you because it's only women or we don't do women, or it's only men and we don't do men only, or it's only 100% Kenyans. And if you're mixed, we don't do that. We don't really think in those terms. We're really thinking in terms of the team 
and the idea and the relevance of the idea and also the competence, of course, and the skill set of the team to actually execute on that particular idea. So to take Access Asia, the team had the right balance of skills and at various stages of its evolution, it may have been led by a certain person or another. What we mean by local is really the relevance to the needs, right? And very much being data-driven. And I think that's important because in this age of extreme awakening about what is diversity, what is inclusion, etc., I think we can become extremists of those notions as well. We want to stay very realistic about the potential that exists if we're open-minded as well. So that's one thing. The second is because Insan is very boutique entity-like, we really work, as you know, Melissa, with our philanthropists very closely. And so we listen not just to the end users and to, of course, those that are building these innovative entities on the ground, but we also listen to our philanthropists. And so our philanthropists have stories. For instance, a particular family that we work with, they have four daughters and they're really into, of course, gender. And they're also very knowledgeable about climate and climate change imperative. And so some of the portfolio construction is also derived from the preferences of the philanthropists we work with. And that's really important to say that we have the power of customization in Ensan. And that power comes from our own field experience, our own networks that we've built over the last 15 years, and also our own sort of constant research around what makes sense and what is relevant. And so for this particular philanthropist, for instance, we invested in Aka Innovations in India because just before our investment, actually, they were working and they had worked for so long to, in a nonprofit model, to create little factories all over India to essentially innovate around sanitary pads, which eventually led to the creation of a 100% compostable sanitary pad in India. And the reach of that product in rural areas was super impressive through their nonprofit model. And of course, they're great because that takes a lot of perseverance and a lot of design innovation, obviously, and engineering. And after we invested in them, they actually received a patent from the government of India. And now in the for-profit entity that we've invested in, this is now being turned into a venture that is looking at essentially turning this into a product that can be sold B2B, B2C, globally, et cetera, right? But you imagine in a country like India, the power of having a compostable product like this because of the sheer scale, the sheer need and the demand in terms of need to rural areas as well. So that's super exciting, incredibly innovative. And again, very much tailored to the preference of our philanthropists I'll give you another example. We received a sort of multi-year funding from an Indian philanthropist that's very passionate about education, as many are, of course, because we all know that education is one of those turning points, right, in one's life that can unleash economic success and also self-actualization. And this particular family, again, is already involved in doing amazing things in the education space in India. And despite all of their, despite all of their work, they decided to work with Insan because they thought that Insan could complement what they're already doing 
which is phenomenal with established institutions, but with Insan, they could take a little bit of that philanthropic portfolio allocation and give us the mandate to say, go and find something in EdTech that we can use. And then we can use our knowledge and our networks to disseminate it and scale it. So let's go and find the best that's being done around how to embed technology in an intelligent manner. Again, not for the segments of society that are already wealthy. We're not talking about an IB system here, but how do we actually bring those kinds of innovations to those that are sitting in the margins of the economic system, but we can try to mainstream them to the right, through the right types of tools, tech tools, which could be anything from language, emotional intelligence, job preparation, connections to internships, as they could be tech tools that you could find in a classroom that could help teachers deliver better and faster, or tech tools for after school to help them rehearse. Because remember, in these very difficult, underserved communities, when children go back home, they either need to work after school or need to help their parents to do their parents' work or need to deal with very difficult family circumstances, which may include no support, essentially, for their education. So the barriers to learning outcomes are incredible. And so if some tech tools can help to readjust and create more equitable opportunities, those are the kinds of things that we're interested in. Thank you for those examples. It helps to understand not only on the local level, what's possible in terms of new ways of thinking around how funds can be used, but also working closely with the philanthropists and the investors to connect them to solutions that also align with their interests. So after this work that you've been doing both personally with intergovernmental organizations and also through social enterprise, what would you say are some of the biggest tensions that you see we're facing in these sectors of philanthropy and investing? That's a great question. And thank you for that opportunity. I think that if I had to conceptualize it as clearly as possible, I would say that there are three types of tensions from my viewpoint that are keeping all of us away from realizing the potential of philanthropy and catalytic capital. The first is, I think, a little bit more discussion around the concept of philanthropy. That's the first one. And what I mean by that is, as you know, philanthropy comes from Greek and means love of humanity. And I don't have updated data to back what I'm going to say, which is a bit polemic. But I suspect that we have globally veered away from the actual essence of that concept. And I think that philanthropy today, from where I stand, I see it more as a tax management service with a range of professional intermediaries that are engaged in the management of that capital. And I would question whether a lot of it is actually purpose-driven. That's the first thing I'm going to put out there. And I don't have the data to back this, and it might be more of a feeling or more of a, an intuition that's maybe backed by a little bit of reading here and there and research. 
but essentially, I think the concept of philanthropy needs to be reassessed, going back to its roots and saying, have we deviated globally from that very essence of loving humanity and making sure that the bulk of that capital is not just sitting, <laughs> doing nothing, best case scenario, and especially doing nothing when it should be doing something now and today. So that's the first point. The second is a reassessment of the purpose of philanthropic capital in terms of the building of a philanthropic portfolio. So the first one was assessing, are we purpose-oriented at all or have we deviated? But the second one assumes that we have a purpose. So we have a purpose, and I'm assuming that there are a number of philanthropists that are purpose-minded here. And for those, I would say that in the construction of a philanthropic portfolio, to use a sort of wealth management jargon here, and I'm going to assume here, again, that's partly research-based informed by readings, that part of that portfolio construction is motivated by social proof. I want to belong. I want to be seen as. Part of it might be motivated by identity. This is who I am. I want to give back to where I come from or to my faith or to a life experience that taught me this, very identity-driven. Part of it might be emotionally driven, right? reacting to a humanitarian need. And I think all of these are very legitimate and genuinely great if they're doing something good in the world and they're probably needed as well. But I would suggest that if as part of that philanthropic portfolio construction, we could include a little bit on catalytic capital and that catalytic capital could become the fourth pillar of that portfolio construction, then honestly, I think we could unleash much more capital. And I think we are ready for that now. I don't think we were ready for that 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, the questions I would be getting would be, are there enough innovations that you could invest in? And today I say, give me the capital. That's all I need. And people laugh. It's all we need because we're ready now. And the third point, I think is a reflection on the positioning of that philanthropic portfolio within a greater portfolio of capital allocation. And this probably is equally interesting because the purpose of capital in general is being put into question, whether it is in public markets, in private markets, or in philanthropy. The entire world now is thinking about what is my capital doing? Is it doing good or is it harmful? Am I contributing to leaving a better world for my children or am I actually harming that world I'm going to leave as a legacy because I've made the wrong allocation choices? And so this is fascinating because catalytic capital that sits at the, let's say, extreme of a philanthropic portfolio is also slash impact investing because one way would be to allocate philanthropic funding through Insan, for instance, to support one of these innovations. But another way would be also to come in with impact capital and say, I'm an impact investor. I want my normal capital to do good. So I can co-invest with, with an Insan, for instance, and come along as a co-investor 
because fundamentally, I don't mind taking a little bit of risk from that impact capital and really putting it into sub-Saharan Africa and India, not just in ventures that are very advanced where you know I think I'm going to get a return of 10x, but I may get two or 3x here. But you know, a bit of that, I'm going to help the world be a little bit more equitable because here I'm really looking at marginalized and underserved communities in underserved parts of the world and underserved geographies. And that becomes a really great proposition of an overall capital construction portfolio. So it sounds like you're able to serve a variety of people who have capital either to invest or to give more in a traditional philanthropic model. How can people learn more about your work? That's a perfect question (laughs) because our work has been very customized and very boutique-like in our own portfolio construction. But a couple of years ago, thanks to a generous philanthropist in Canada, we were able to essentially scale our thinking through a new platform called Impact Footprint. So you can learn all about insangroup.org and then you'll see a link to Impact Footprint there. And Impact Footprint is basically the way we've designed the next version of Insan. Everything that we've learned is going to be scaled through Impact Footprint. So it's like taking catalytic capital to the next level, putting it out there in steroids. And so essentially what it does is it enables anyone, anywhere. So it could be a philanthropist, anywhere, or an impact investor, right? It could even be a Series A type of VC institution that is wondering, I wonder what's going on around SDG 5, around quality education, or I'm super interested in Ghana, right? Or I'm interested in fintech, or I'm interested in climate and gender. And you can then go into Impact Footprint. And we just launched it a few weeks ago at some phenomenal event called the Ibrahim Governance Weekend. I highly recommend it. And you can Google it and see all sorts of very interesting speeches, debates, and panels. And we were lucky enough to be featured as one of those civil society actors presenting at the end of that event. So it's fairly new. So we're working really hard at populating this platform. But really, in a nutshell, what it does is that it features innovative solutions contributing to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So what we're essentially providing is very accessible to anyone, simple, standardized data to enable change makers, so social enterprises, in fact, entities on the ground, to showcase their story and their impact and allow, in turn, philanthropists and impact investors and whoever else is interested in this. It could be a DFI, could be a VC, to discover and accelerate the financing of local solutions. So we're not kind of a payment platform. We're not a matching platform. But what we are is we're making all of this knowledge accessible and really trying to propel the impact stories and impactful stories with standardized data with the dashboard of the UN Sustainable Goals. And that's really important because that means we're all aligned with the same vision. And that's amazing. All of us are aligned to actually follow those goals and contribute to them in our own capacities, however small. That's what makes Impact Footprint super exciting and incredibly inspiring, I think, to all of us that are working on it. 
Well, we look forward to checking it out and to continue to go back to Impact Footprint to see how it grows and to learn about these social enterprises and to really dig into all of your learnings through this really innovative work. So I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story, sharing the work that you do. And well, we look forward to hopefully contributing to the future you're working to create. Melissa, thank you so much for your engagement and for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation. What I enjoyed about this conversation with Farinaz is her passion to create change, to support innovative local solutions through catalytic capital.